Shug Jordan kind of made Auburn relevant, but he never could kind of get it to where he beat Alabama consistently, and Pat did with players like Bo Jackson. Um, and then, um, so it was a lot of fun. And the games were always like 22 to 21 or 20 to 19, and you had the bow over the top or wrong way bow or, you know, a Tiffin's kick. Uh, all, you know, I waxed the dude was one of the great. So it was almost like every game you could remember by one line that came out of those games. Alabama Life. I'll be playing the part of your host for the next few minutes here on this particular podcast. We're glad to have you aboard if you are not familiar with what we do and why we do it. This uh, podcast is sponsored by 1819 News, and our mission in life is to present stories of people who are associated with Alabama, the state of Alabama, either born here, moved here, or in some way associated, who have done remarkable things. We're into storytelling. We love to tell stories about seemingly average folks who get into unusual situations and who do remarkable things. And uh, the one criterion is we try to tell positive stories. We feel like uh, other media are knocking themselves out to tell bad, sad, uh, and downer stories. We tell positive stories. I got to tell you, I've been looking forward to uh, interviewing this guy for ever since I used to see his byline and the Birmingham Post-Herald and the Birmingham News. I thought he had the greatest job in the world as a sports writer in the state of Alabama. And now he's actually associated with the folks who are responsible for this podcast, 1819 News. Ray Malik is here. Ray is editor-in-chief at 1819 News, and it's great to finally get to meet you and talk to you. Well, it's good to sit and talk with you. I, I was going to say I feel kind of honored to be interviewed by you. So this is uh, a, a good chance for both of us to circled around each other for a lot of years and a lot of different ways to sit down together. Absolutely. We've both been involved in media in this area. I'm a book writer now by choice, uh, no longer in the broadcasting business. But, uh, Ray, you've done a little bit of all of it. Uh, uh, By the way, to me, this is like sitting around a a restaurant table with a couple (laughs) of glasses of sweet tea and just catching up. Uh, Yeah. How'd you get started? Where'd Where'd you grow up and and not Alabama, sure. I don't think. No, I grew up in East Point, Georgia, which is down near the airport southwest uh, of Atlanta. The approach uh, pattern over Stone Mountain, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, went to the University of Georgia. It, it's kind of funny. I was going to uh, major in journalism there, and uh, or I did major in journalism there. My f- uh, degree was actually film. I wanted to make movies. And... Uh, when I got out and I went around to different movie production, this is before Atlanta became the center. I could do it now, but back then they were like, no, you're going to have to go to L.A. And I talked to folks and they said, well, you know, you need to be a freelancer. you got to get a reputation. I said, well, how do I get a reputation? Well, you work in the business. And I go, but I can't work in the business until I get a reputation. So this is, a, this is not a long-term project. Uh, I had written sports in college for the, for the student newspaper. Uh, because I'd played sports my whole life and been around it and loved it. And um, interestingly enough, it was an uh, an ad for a sports writer in the Gwinnett Daily News, Lawrenceville, Georgia, which is on the northeast side of Atlanta. Great place to start out. Advertised for a sports writer. An ice storm hit Atlanta. I mean, shut the city down. I showed up for my interview anyway. Uh, I interviewed with the editor and the sports editor, who both couldn't make it to the paper. So I interviewed from their desk on the phone talking to them, and I think they didn't have any choice but to hire a guy that was willing to get out. Risk his an, life for yeah, this job. <laughs> an ice storm. 
uh, and, and got the job and did that. It was a great place to start, three-man staff. We I did bet it. you started covering Georgia the first day, right? Well, you know, it was really funny. That, that's an interesting story in itself. So I got there in the spring, and I remember the boss, because we were so close to Atlanta, and the Atlanta Falcons trained just a mile from our office. So we, it was a great place to go. But i never forget, he said, uh, do you know anything about hockey, the NHL? And I said, well, no, not really. And he goes, well, you better learn. Tomorrow night you're covering the playoffs because the Atlanta uh, Flames, I think it was at the time, were in the NHL playoffs. So here I am right out of college, know nothing, and I'm covering the NHL playoffs. And I'm a Southern boy. I couldn't even skate, never been on ice. So anyway, you learn quick. And, yeah, I got to cover the University of Georgia, the Atlanta Falcons, uh, the uh, hockey, soccer, road Atlanta racing, Mel- Paul Newman when he was driving. So it was a great you know, four or five years is a way to do, plus high schools, plus take pictures, plus edit, plus layout. I mean, everything. And got fabulously wealthy in the process. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, In fact, Do you remember what your salary was when you started? uh, I know that I was making $125 a week. Wow. Yeah. And uh, my roommate and I got an apartment in Atlanta, and he told me later that we filled out our application, and they called him and said, look, Ray doesn't make enough to qualify. We're going to have to do all this off your income, which he actually was very well off his family. So just that's kind of followed me around. But, um, yeah, it was a great, great place to start until uh, got the chance to come to Birmingham. So um, 1983, uh, missed the two biggest stories of the year. Uh, Herschel Walker, who I'd covered for three years at Georgia, I came over here the week after Coach Bryant had died in his funeral, so I missed that story. The week after I got here, Herschel Walker jumped to the USFL, one of the first underclassmen to do that, and I missed that story. So how about that to miss two of the biggest sports stories of the year just by changing jobs? I was about to say your timing is impeccable on all this so far, but then suddenly – Okay, you're going to Alabama, yeah. and things turned around a little bit there. Well, it was crazy, but yeah, I came here to the United States Football League. I wanted to cover pro football. I had uh, covered a lot of the Atlanta Falcons, gotten to travel with them. Those were some good years, Lehman Bennett and uh, Steve Bartkowski, and they were, you know, they were playoff teams, and thought, well, this is what I want to do with my life, and I thought the USFL was a chance to show what I could do. Um, <clears throat> covered Auburn in the fall, the USFL in the spring, so – For a Southern boy who likes football, it was football year-round. I I added up one time, I think it was like 30-something football games I covered in one year and loved it, really enjoyed it, loved covering the USFL. Uh, Of course, after three years, uh, when it went away, thanks to Donald Trump, um, who decided he wanted to take on the NFL, and that was a futile process. And then they moved me to covering Alabama, and next thing you know, I met a nice lady who we married, and started having kids. My job just got better and better, and I never left, really. So uh, it, it's been a good long run. I don't want to talk too much about the old USFL, since we've got a new USFL coming. <laughs> yeah. uh, there may be some interest there. Back in the, the, the mid-'80s, who were some of the players that played in Birmingham or, and some of the other teams in the league? Sure. It was, a, <clears throat> it was a great league. And here, of course, Cliff Stout had replaced Terry Bradshaw as a quarterback of the Steelers, and the, and the Pittsburgh fans were brutal to him, even though they were in the playoffs. So he came here. Raleigh Dodge had been the line coach, and the Steelers was the head coach here. Uh, Jim Smith, who was kind of the third wide receiver in Pittsburgh between Lynn Swan and uh, Stallworth. So he was looking to make a name for himself. Uh, Joe Cripps had been an all-pro running back from Auburn and then in the NFL. He came back here. Tom Banks, uh, Buddy Adelette, who had been with uh, – uh, uh, 
Packers, I think, came here, then went back to the Vikings and the league folded. But you had Jim Kelly. You had Herschel Walker. You had Steve Young. Uh, you had uh, Mike Rozier, who was a Heisman Trophy winner out of Nebraska. A lot of players that were really phenomenal. It was a great league, a lot of fun, um, and guys that went on and proved themselves uh, in the NFL, as we know, particularly you know Steve Young. Brian Seip had been a NFL star at quarterback for a lot of years with the New Jersey Generals. and um, Really was a fun league, good guys. I was roughly their age, so I got to hang with them a little bit here in Birmingham and still friends with a number of those guys. That's what I remember. and that Some people remember it differently, especially since we've had other attempts at leagues a lot. down through the years, and they sort of associate that first group with those. And that, it was a good brand of football. It really was. And ABC TV had good ratings. I, I really think had they not gone to the fall, I think the league really was on course to make it. Uh, it was making it. Attendance here was always really good. It was building up around the league. But uh, as I said, uh, some of the egos decided they thought they could take the NFL on head on and go to the fall. And uh, even though they won their court case and the famous $1 verdict, the jury awarded them $1, which was tripled under antitrust laws to $3. And so for 3 bucks, the league went away. And the lawyers got half that. Yeah, so that's right. <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Covering Alabama and Auburn, especially uh, in that era, was uh, up and down, I guess. Well, the 80s was really a great time. Pat Dye had come into Auburn, and they had come off a 10-year losing streak to Alabama. Coach Bryan, of course, as I said, had passed away. She had Ray Perkins and then Bill Curry. And so uh, Pat Dow really did a great job of making Auburn competitive within the state. Uh, you talk about uh, uh, Shug Jordan kind of made Auburn relevant, but he never could kind of get it to where he beat Alabama consistently, and Pat did with players like Bo Jackson. Um, and then um, so it was a lot of fun, and the games were always like 22 to 21 or 20 to 19, and you had the Bo over the top or wrong way Bo or – you know, of Tiffin's kick, uh, all, you know, I waxed the dude was one of the great. So it was almost like every game you could remember by one line that came out of those games. And it was a really fun time to be with the Iron Bowl. Still at that point, 50-50 at Legion Field, more or less. Uh, you remember, I mean, just, you know, when the bands came, it was just a spectacle. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. I, I know the reasons for changing that, but it's you, you still miss yeah. that 50-50 crowd. I remember some great moments, Kenny Stabler stumbling through the mud to win the game. I missed that whole thing because everybody had umbrellas then. You could bring umbrellas <laughs> to the game. I couldn't see anything. Yeah. I was in the end zone for the uh, two block punts uh, when Alabama lost. I couldn't see either one of them because I saw the ball up in the air and I saw all the Auburn folks standing up and yeah. screaming so twice. Yeah. I did a story on that game once with a, a guy, and I, I don't remember his name, but an Auburn fan from a long time, and he went to that game, and I, I wasn't here for it, but convinced Auburn was going to win. And, that, of course, Auburn's behind, and it's into the fourth quarter. It's over. The game's over. Yeah, and he leaves, and he goes to, like, the bar at the Tutwiler or somewhere downtown, and he's drinking. And all the Auburn fans come in and just so fired up, excited. and I mean, it was just crushing to him that he had missed the, the fabulous ending of probably one of the great games of all time. And a very interesting story that I'd gotten a chance to write way back, re reflecting on the memories of that game. Absolutely. We all, whichever side you're on, yeah. you, you have those kind of memories. My, my big one, I tell my wife, I, I want my ashes strewn in the north end zone at, uh, at Legion Field where Van Tiffen kicked the field goal yeah. to win the game with time running out. I was not there for that game, but it's, you know, those kind of memories. Yeah. And you were there 
for a lot of these things covering and I was getting in, paid for it in the end zone the far end zone from Tiffin's kick because the press <laughs> the uh, locker rooms and, and press room was on the other end of the stadium so he's kicking to the south I believe I'm right and that's also the game there were like tornado warnings or something so the weather was terrible and I remember being in the press box and seeing the people in the upper deck across the way all standing up and pointing, and I'm going, something's behind us, guys. We've got a problem here. Whatever it was, it didn't. Actually had a tornado touchdown in West, out near Five Points West. Yeah, so a uh, lot of excitement back in those days, but a lot of great games. And, of course, Tiffin's kick uh, was a great one. And um, good time, Derek uh, Thomas, uh, you know, Thomas Rayum, uh, Cornelius Bennett, just Phenomenal, as we said, Frank Thomas when he was a football player. A uh, lot of great, great players and, and, and guys. Again, I still that if I, I see them, they they remember me. I remember them obviously, and it's just flattering that we were all, as I said, kind of grew up together. Do you think Alabama and Auburn fans, and even to some extent UAB fans, take this for granted? We think this is the way it's supposed to be. That we're always number one and playing for whatever yeah you know it is interesting that the culture in Alabama particularly the Alabama fans they just assume national championships are almost like a birthright and and of course with what Nick Saban's done uh justifiably so but they forget the the era sometimes between Bryant and and Saban there was one championship Gene Stallings in 92 a great team and I was covering that when I was the beat writer at that time um, and then Auburn had a good run in the early 2000s, never got that. So it's been kind of up and down and never quite there. But certainly this, this is an unprecedented run for Alabama and a lot of fun to watch uh, what they're doing. As I said, I'm a University of Georgia grad. So this past year in particular was really nice to finally. Being an Alabama grad, I didn't enjoy it quite as much as you did. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, um, but my family were all Alabama fans, and so, you know, it was kind of fun to sit there. And, and uh, as I said, I was going to win either way. I was happy either way, but certainly happy that Georgia finally broke the, the curse. Well, I think college football needs somebody else to win every once in a while, just every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, career-wise, you put the Post-Herald out of business, right? Yeah. Uh, great newspaper, uh, great staff, I think one of the best sports staffs. And we were really known as a writer's paper. We were allowed to really – develop and write good stories. And for those that don't remember, you were the morning paper. Yes, and, and that was when uh, we, we were talking before about job security. I, I felt like a morning newspaper was going to be there for forever. Uh, one of the things we developed there that old-timers would remember was the on Monday morning, uh, the back page of the sports section was a full page, just stories and pictures, and we called it B8. Some, that was the page number. Usually the B section was the sports. Page 8 would be your last page. And it really developed a reputation. There were, uh, school, you know, players and coaches would always say to me, hey, are, you, are we going to be the B8 for this Monday? Are we going to be the B8? Uh, it allowed us to really write, to really feature photographers, and we had some great ones. And uh, a great newspaper that, unfortunately, uh, because of the working agreement with the Birmingham News, at one point Newhouse, that on the Birmingham News said, hey, the futures in morning papers, we're going to flip cycles. I was actually covering the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. That's a whole other story with the, in the park when the bomb went off and a lot of stuff there. But right at the tail end of that was when the cycle flipped. So one day I'm writing for the morning newspaper. That afternoon I've got to be rethinking, okay, this is an afternoon paper now. And you have to think differently for the two cycles. So finished out that way until 2003, I think is when the folded. might have been 2005. Uh, fortunately... Birmingham News picked me up immediately. 
said that uh, you and uh, myself and Kevin Skarbinski would just alternate days as lead columnist and did that until 2010 when I, uh, the business started changing. It had been for a while. It just wasn't what I uh, was wanting to do anymore and, and needed that break. I, I think a lot of old timers may not remember. We once had two daily newspapers yeah. and now the city of Birmingham does not have a single daily newspaper. Yeah. And the fact that our pay, the Birmingham news and the post Herald went uh, all over central Alabama. I mean, the folks in, in Starkville, Mississippi felt like we were their paper over the Mississippi papers because they're right across the line. And that's the distribution at one time went that far. So and it was a lot of fun. We competed, uh, you know, I was friends with all those guys. We traveled together, but you still competed to try to be better, to tell the story better, to get the story first. And uh, people say all the time, do you miss it? I always say I miss the way it was in the 80s and 90s. I loved being a beat writer. The way it's done now is just really, really hard to do the kind of a job that we did back then. So uh, Don't get me started. The Alabama-Auburn basketball game was on at night, so the next morning's paper did not have a mention of the game. And that's unfortunate. I, I can remember uh, a lot of great stories there, but particularly when Alabama basketball in the 90s was very good. And you remember Arkansas uh, with Nolan Richardson had that great run, literally covering a game that was on ESPN. Again, morning newspapers, people don't know this, but you had deadlines. So it had to go to press by a certain point. And they didn't care if the game was over or not. I mean, they, the press was running. So I'm pre-writing a story, writing it as the game's unfolding, And then I had to send it because it was on deadline. But the game's not quite over yet. We had these old things called teleramps, and you had to get a dial-up phone that nobody knows. And you had to put the phone receiver down into the box. And if there was outside noise, it interfered with the transmission. So here I am, uh, Barnhill Arena. I don't know how many thousand fans going. I am literally under the table at the floor side, on court side, trying to get it silent enough, wrapping the thing up with my body to plug the phone in to make the connection to send the story. Uh, things that you just don't have to do anymore. Yeah, uh, we have the technology to do all that stuff much quick, much more quickly. Yeah. But our, what our, our papers printed, we're in Atlanta or Mobile somewhere. Uh, yeah. It comes up by truck. So I, deadline must be like 8 o'clock at night. I, I have no idea. I'll, I'll tell you one more quick story since we're just talking uh, that people won't, today's generation won't get. But again... To file a story, you had to have a landline. You had to have a phone. Right. And, and, you know, this was the day when you had landlines. I'm covering a golf tournament, uh, Alabama Open or something, that was a amateur state tournament here, and uh, finished up and realized the clubhouse was closed. And I didn't have a phone. So I had to go, but I'm on deadline. So I first farmhouse I came to, I knocked on the door. This lady sort of cracks the door. I said, ma'am, I... I know this can sound crazy, but I'm a sports writer. It's a golf tournament. I just need to borrow your phone for like five minutes to send this story. I'm going to plug it into this machine, and I'll be out of here. I said, please. And she said, uh, okay. And she opened the door wider, and she's holding a pistol, pulls the hammer back, and goes, but I'm going to be watching you. <laughs> and I always tell people, you want pressure? Try filing, try filing a story with a with an old farmer's wife or lady sitting there holding a gun right there and watching every move you make. Literally under the gun. Yeah, to get that that's, story really in. that's right. That was under the gun. So uh, I tell that story, and uh, again, a different time, different era that people don't always uh, don't appreciate now what we went through back in those days. Yeah, we could all tell some stories like yeah. that in the early days of radio. And I say early days, and we're talking 70s and 80s. Yeah. 
Uh, so you, you left the newspaper business and took on another couple of media. <clears throat> yeah, um, it's funny. In 2010, as I said, uh, the Internet really changed newspapers. We can talk about that later on. Uh, but um, I had decided it was just time to get out. I, I really, my wife even said, you know, you're just not happy doing this anymore. Let's do something different. Her family was from St. Louis. I had connections. So we were going to move up there, and I was going to freelance in the uh, Post-Dispatch knew the guys. They were like, yeah, we can give you all the work you want. This is great. So um, standing in a parking lot at church, my kids were going off on a church trip, and a guy walks up and he goes, hey, an oil rig blew up down in the Gulf, and BP needs media help. Would you be interested in doing that for the summer? <clears throat> and I'm like, sure, biggest story in the world. I knew what was going on. Uh, that summer job turned into three years, uh, ended up being the director of communications for the Gulf Coast Restoration Organization, which was the restoring the Gulf part of BP, moved down there. Um, I went down for my interview, uh, the command center in Mobile. Uh, the press room was really not well organized. I will say this. If you were around the Southeastern Conference, you understood how to do press. They did it, uh, teleconferences, you know, press conference. They do it better than anybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I walk in, and there's some people. The phone rings, and nobody's answering it. And I pick it up, and it's a reporter from somewhere. Hey, I need this information about what's going on. And So I said, sure, give me your name and number, and I got it. And I wandered over to somebody and gathered the information and brought it back. And the lady that came in to interview me, and I said, look, I got this call from a reporter. Uh, I've got the information for him. I'll give him the quote. But who do you want me to say said it? Because it's always got to be, you know, so-and-so with BP said this. And she said, you, you're a BP spokesman. Hmm. And I said, I've been to the BP station on Rocky Ridge Road. That's all I know about this. She <laughs> goes, doesn't matter. You're it. So I hadn't even been hired yet. And uh, I kind of had him over a barrel at that point. So I called up and said, yeah, you can quote me. I'm the BP spokesman. Um, very interesting job. Very interesting situation to walk into there for the next three years. That first year when the well was still going and a lot of panic over what might happen at the Gulf. Um, Interesting, interesting time. Oh, it had to be. And I, this was not without controversy, and you may not want to talk about it, but even some of your uh, colleagues had some real tough things to say about you becoming a shill for BP. Yeah, um, I'll never forget John Archibald actually wrote a column in, in which he used the phrase, he said, you know, then Ray Mellick crossed over, and you know what that means. And the next line was, he's dead to me. I know, John. I laughed about it. But I had friends that were really, really offended by that. And I got it. And uh, the, the um, there was a national publication like Columbia Journalism Review did a story about newspaper people moving over to PR and focused on me, which I don't know. Well, it was BP. That's why. Yeah. So I got a lot of attention out of that, which helped later on. But, um, yeah, there was always that feeling of I've betrayed my roots by leaving, covering the story to trying to tell the story. Uh, but I was also kind of creating that job as I went, and I really did try to work honestly with reporters. And I always said, reporters are going to find out, so let's go ahead and tell them what's going on, and let's be up in front about this. And uh, to some extent, they allowed me to do that. To some, they didn't, and that was a learning lesson. But uh, great experience, great people that I'm still friends with. And again, I think, and you're the same way, as you travel and do different things, the connections, the relationships you build are really what make the jobs memorable. Yep, absolutely. And You know, the Hollywood portrayal of your typical PR flack is not very positive, and yet all you're doing is trying to tell that side of the story as honestly as you can. Yeah. 
We had a uh, inventors convention in the parking lot of the Gulf Shore State Park where, if you remember, the oil hadn't gotten there yet, but everybody's got an idea on how to absorb the oil and stop it from getting to the shoreline, forgetting that there were 2,200 natural oil leaks in the Gulf. Anyway, and oil was a part of, you know, if you grew up there, you stepped you in see the tar, tar balls. balls. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and this was more serious than that, but I'm just saying it, it was a regular feature. So CNN came, and I'm on CNN. We're walking around and introducing all these, you know, talking to all these different ideas that people had and coming from all over the country because they all thought this was going to be the thing that made them rich. And all of them, or a lot of them, had sort of like half of a good idea or a part of a good idea, and it was kind of fun to see them talk to each other and go, well, if I got your idea and my idea and we combine the idea, you know, so uh, – but to sit there and be on CNN talking about trapping oil, as I said, I could pump gas at a BP station uh, and buy a Diet Coke and a pack of cookies. That's about all I knew about the business. But uh, I did learn, and it was a lot of fun. And it was, uh, as I said, all the agencies uh, kind of got a nice reputation for handling crisis communication. Uh, a number of guys said, hey, you could do this the rest of your career. And really, and if I thought, do I want to go from disaster yeah. to disaster to disaster? Uh, that wasn't for me. Having done a little bit of that myself, uh, you, you never know when that phone rings. Uh-oh, what yeah. have I got to try to do now? And it's not always easy. Yeah, and we went through a lot of training um, for that. Another great story is they put us into a crisis management training situation. I'm sure you've done them. Yep. And they gave us a scenario. And the point was, we're going to give you a little bit of the scenario as we go along, and you've got to react to it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I bet this happened somewhere. So I actually Googled the event. <laughs> and so I'm giving them the response based on what actually happened. How did happened. that poor guy respond to Well, this? they didn't. I don't know if they ever caught on. I mean, it was just really kind of funny. But they would be, and I, I kept coming up with the right answers. And they're just thinking, holy moly, you're really good at this. I'm going, <laughs> I can research. It's called the Internet. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. But you always want to tell the truth. And that's, yeah. That's what I found. And that's what I always tell people, too. I said, it's going to come out sooner or later. So, Let's try to get it. And the other thing I always said was, you know, the first, the reporter's going to shape his story based usually on the first person he talks to. Mm-hmm. So I said, let's try to be quick and make sure we're the first person he talks to. Then all of his subsequent questions are going to come based off the information we've given. It's not always true. And regardless of how bad you might look with that first information, yeah. you're going to look even worse if you lie about it or that's give right. misinformation or try to mislead. And that, yeah. And, um, I mean, I flew planes out over the wellhead where they would drop the tailgate of these things so photographers could go out latched on to take pictures of the well. I mean, it was, again, it was uh, forgetting what you were involved in. It was just a lot of fun. A little different than eating press box food, right? Yes, absolutely. And the pay was quite good, I just have to say. So it, why uh, did you walk away other than just uh, didn't want to do that anymore? Well, uh, the crisis uh, wound down much more quickly than they thought it would. Um, really at the end of one year, they realized, hey, the beaches are open, they're clean, food's good, the fish is safe to eat. You know, uh, they began to shrink the the size of what they were doing. Um, I started looking for another job. I mean, they told me, they said, listen, we got an opening in Alaska that'd be great for you. (laughs) I'm sorry, we're going from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi to the North Shore of Alaska? Um, Not for this Southern boy, I can't do that one. They said, well... Then, you, you know, six months, you need to decide if you want that job. We'd love to keep you, but we understand if you don't. Uh, applied for a number of positions. That's a whole other story in itself, but ended up going to work for Georgia Pacific. 
uh, doing uh, government communications for, for uh, public affairs for Georgia Pacific in Mississippi, and um, did that for a couple of years. And then uh, uh, an old friend of mine, Gary Palmer, who had played football at Alabama as a walk-on, I knew his brother David, who had been a linebacker in the 80s when I was covering. He was uh, founded and started uh, the Alabama Policy Institute. But Gary called and said, hey, Ray, I'm going to run for Congress. Um, if I win, I'd love for you to be on my staff. And I went, oh, hey, I'd love to do it. Hung up. I looked at my wife and goes, he's Gary not Palmer's win. not going to win. Yeah, nobody's going to vote for Gary Palmer. Because he's got good sense. Nobody's <laughs> going to vote for somebody with good sense. That's right. I mean, he's an honest guy. He knows policy. He's everything that, that you want. But that's why people won't vote for him. But they did, and I'm glad they did. So, yeah, I went to work for Gary and was his district director in the 6th Congressional District for seven years. I think it was close to eight years before um, – uh, the call came for 1819 News. So that's a lot of stuff there in a, in a hurry. But it's really been uh, – it, it's interesting to come back to journalism. And one of the things that I said is if we do this, I want to do this the way that, you know, I think is the right way to do it. I want And I do want to talk about yeah. that. You, you did a little radio and television in there too. I did, yeah. So uh, as we said, I back in the sports days, Herb Winches and I did uh, the afternoon uh, Herb and Ray show on Jocks, uh, 99, uh, well, 690 AM My old station. Yeah. Uh, and then Mike Ray and I did a little TV show on ABC that was called The Zone on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget Mike and then Doug Segrist and I. And Mike said, hey, we're just going to do this for the football season, three months. I'm like, okay, that's cool. The ratings were so good. We ended up doing it. I left. It was still going on after about seven years of every Sunday night, all year round. People really responded to the show of three old white guys talking sports at the end of the week. Um, Kind of funny. I remember my, my pastor's wife. Uh, saw me and said, oh, Ray, I love the, you know, I, I, I tell Tim all the time, I go to bed with you every Sunday night. I'm like, ooh, that doesn't quite sound what you mean right there. So, uh, but it was a good run. And 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 uh, I got to write for Sports Illustrated and do some ESPN work and a lot of freelance work as I, I tell people, uh, you know, it was how many different ways could I get paid to do the same job? And uh, it was a, it was a lot. You don't make a lot of money in journalism, or at least you didn't then. And um, uh, but it was fun. It was what I love doing. It's that appetite for sports. I think that you were helping to feed yeah. that appetite. And I, I tell you know I would get a chance to go speak to college kids or high school kids that were in journalism, and I would always say, if you can imagine yourself doing something different, then go do it. But if you can't imagine yourself doing anything but journalism, then God help you. But you're going to do it. And that was me. I just couldn't. The deadlines were perfect for me, 24-hour turnaround. I loved it. You know, as a writer, I've always heard that some of the best writing is sports journalism yeah. and sports writing. Do you agree with that? I would think so. I think that you're telling a story. You're, you're trying to uh, draw people in. Uh, it's important, but it's not life and death. And I think a lot of really good sports writers have gone on to be novelists or editors of papers and, and progress. And I think part of it is because – one, you understand deadline. You you, you, you know how to make a deadline. Uh, two, uh, it's, uh, it's a great way to, you know, to assimilate information in a hurry, but yet learn how to present it in a simple way that people get. And uh, I just think it was, and you're not afraid of long hours. You know, you'd work 55, 60 hours in a week. Uh, again, going back to BP. I remember at one point they came to me and said, hey, Ray, here's a project. We, we got to have this in a hurry. And I'm like, okay, you know, how quick do you need it? Can you get this done in two weeks? And I said, 
sure, that gives me 13 days to do nothing. This is great. I love it. But to them, that was a, you know, hey, we, I know this is a real rush, but I'm used to, you know, a 12-hour turnaround in a story. So, um, yeah, it, it was a great foundation, and a, and a lot of editors of major papers in that era were came out of the sports department. It's so many great stories, great human stories, too. That's why I admire the work that 30 for 30 and Tom Rinaldi, I think, is great. Uh, yeah. The work that they do, both and those some of those guys do it in print. They also do it in video. So Yeah, a lot of guys that I kind of grew up with that were sports writers moved over to ESPN and now Fox and different things that are doing visual sports writing stories, but they're good writers. They tell the story well, and uh, uh, it's fun to see. Paul Feinbaum and I came in together, kind of grew up together in the business, so it's fun to see Paul's success. Uh, Paul really knew very little about sports, but Paul knew people, and that was a, a great way around it. Gene Wojciechowski, uh, I could have to go through the list. So many of these guys that I've – it's fun to see them do well. It's fun to see them on TV and – that they've gone on with it. Absolutely. Well, this 1819 News thing, what attracted you to, to, to those guys? Well, it's, it's uh, kind of funny. The COVID situation uh, changed the ability to get out and meet with people. We did as much as we could from the district office representing Gary, uh, but it slowed down a little bit. Um, and, and honestly, uh, some personal things changed, and I told my wife, you know, maybe it's time to retire uh, you know, I'm not going to do this much longer. Then I got a call uh, about, hey, we're going to put together this thing called 1819 News, and we just wondering if there was any chance that you might possibly think about, uh, you know, running this thing for us. Um, and I said, well, yeah, I'm really excited about it, but I need to talk to my wife because we had some plans of what we were going to do. And so I went home, and uh, I've got a great wife who kind of grew up in the business with me, and she, she said, Ray, all the time when we were younger, we would travel around. You said, when I retire, I'd really like to buy a small-town newspaper and run it and really run it right. She goes, these guys are kind of giving you the opportunity to do that. And I said, so you're not going to mind? And she said, no, let's, you know, let's end the career kind of the way we started. So uh, that was the draw, was to be able to come in and, and put together a staff. And uh, I wanted to do a couple of things. One thing is I wanted to be straightforward, as honest as we could, unbiased as, as you possibly can be. Two, I thought it was really important to have a conservative editorial page. I think too many uh, of our outlets in the state, the editorial page tends to, teen, to, to lean left. I don't think that reflects Alabama. I, I'm not saying that the right is always right, but I'm just saying at least be respectful of people's views and understand the people you're dealing with. And the third thing was just there was a real lack of true investigative reporting, and that's something we're we're working on, we're not there yet, but that will be the third kind of component to what I think we'll be able to do that could be a game changer for covering anything in this state, but to be able to put resources into it and cover it the way we used to do it back in the old days. Exciting, the old days. exciting times, I think, for any journalist who wants, really wants to get to the bottom of a story and tell it truthfully. Yeah, and, uh, and the fact is that some of the great investigative reporters that I grew up with um, – the paper was in a position to say, okay, if this takes you six months without you getting a byline in the paper, it's okay. We know at the end we're going to get an award-winning story. But as newsrooms shrank, budgets got tighter, suddenly you couldn't afford to have a guy on a staff who wasn't producing daily. And so they really began to, they, they can say they're investigative, but they really did away with the old style of investigations. Uh, I think we've been afforded a position here, uh, and we've hired an investigative reporter. And, um, 
I think, you know, I'm going to hold to the fact that if he's working a really good story, he doesn't have to produce daily. Just get me a really good story. I tell all of our reporters, uh, I want quality over quantity. But if you're not going to give me quality, then you better be giving me quantity. You better give me volume. But if you can get something really good, the rest of it, I'll take good over just volume. And uh, we've got a good staff that I think is doing both of those things. I think we're producing a quantity, but I think there's a real lot of quality, and that's what we're hearing from people, and it's really flattering. Well, in the spirit of full disclosure, this podcast is produced as part of 1819 News. Yeah. And, but I'm excited by what I've seen, and that's why I've agreed to be a part of it. And I, I love the idea. Looking at journalism today, what do you think? Yeah, you know, and that's one of the reasons I got out of it in 2010. Uh, the internet came in and really threw newsrooms for a bit of a loop. Suddenly people were getting their information off their computers and eventually their phones and from a wide variety of sources. And so you had to compete. Um, and then you began to notice, okay, we want attention on the internet. You want to post a story that you hope gets noticed, that gets likes. Likes become a trend. You want your story to be trending. And then you want a viral story. Well, to go viral, you've got to appeal to a, a worldwide audience, you know, to get millions of hits or likes or views or whatever it is. And uh, so two things happened. One, I think reporters began to feel that pressure, so they quit thinking about who is my audience. It's the people of Alabama or the people of Birmingham or the people of whatever community you're writing for. And no, now my audience is how do I make this go viral so I get a lot of attention. You are often judged by clicks, how many times your stories were were clicked uh, in a website. And the second thing, and I think the bigger issue was they began to say, hey, as soon as you get your story, post it yourself. And I would say, well, what about a copy editor? What about an editor? We'll do that later. You know, if we got to fix something, we'll fix it later. You just hit my hot button. It drives me nuts. Even headlines, which they've got time to write a good, it has typographical and grammatical errors or whatever. And uh, drives me nuts. Makes me wonder if the rest of the story is right or not. I know. And I, I, you know, I think I was a pretty clean writer, clean meaning not a lot of errors and and whatever. But I always uh, had a love hate relationship with a copy editor. You hated because they changed your copy. On the other hand, you loved the fact they saved you from looking bad. Exactly. And it was really an issue of, I just, you know, and we used to say, get it first, but first get it right. Suddenly it was get it first, we'll make it right later. And I just couldn't operate that way. And so, uh, again, one of the things that I've sort of instituted here is the idea of uh, we want to be first with a story, but first we're going to make sure that we get it as right as we can. Got some really good copy editors. That's not to say we don't make mistakes. There are. But I think we've really done a much better job of keeping it cleaner, and we're not hearing a lot from people going, hey, you know, this, that, or the other, as you're saying, with uh, it's actually distracting. I, I can't read it, and even columns. Yeah, uh, and I, I know a lot of journalists are required to not only file the story but to write a blog and to take pictures. Yeah, they issue the, they've got iPhones, and that's how you're getting your your images on yeah. there. You know, and and I even working for the congressman. Uh, one of the things they said was, "Your iPhones are so good now, you can do videos with the congressman just off your phone with and learned how to do all that." The technology has changed the game completely, but I still think at its core, you want to be right and, and you want to make sure somebody else, even you know uh, the position of editor-in-chief, technically I'm the boss. When I do write stuff, though, 
I send it through the same process. I make sure Erica Thomas and, and, and Lon Worley are copy editor and managing editors read these things for, that I do and and give me feedback and edit it and make sure that it's the best product we can make by the time we hit publish on it. Absolutely important. Um, talk about the state of print journalism. Uh, again, we're in one of the largest cities in America, and we have a three-time-a-week newspaper. And sometimes it looks like a pamphlet on a Friday. Yeah, and a lot of those stories have already been online, and you feel like, why am I reading this? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, you know, the, I understand print is expensive. The, the cost of newsprint, the cost of ink uh, became prohibitive. That's why you saw uh, the Birmingham News, which had a great press downtown, moved it to Mobile, then I think moved it to New Orleans, and now I think it's being printed in Atlanta, and Atlanta's probably printing papers for all over the southeast. Um, and people just sort of lost that tactical desire to pick up a paper and uh, become an ink-stained wretch where the ink actually would get on your fingers sometimes and you, you know, it yeah, was that there. fresh. Um, but it's a generation that, uh, that, that doesn't read books. Uh, they do, but they're not hard copy books. It's online. It's Kindle, or, or, which probably now is outdated. And, and it's podcasts. My son uh, often tells me, hey, Dad, you need to li- listen to this podcast. And I'll always say, well, do they have a transcript? Because I'd rather read it. But it's a generational thing moving toward the audio, audio and the video part of learning as opposed to reading the words. And as and, uh, much as I may want to fight it, that's what the future is. It's, not, it's already here. And um, we'll see. And I see it in television news, too. People say, well, there's more television news than ever. You know, local stations are doing three- and four-hour news blocks in the afternoons now. And I have to explain to people that's because that's cheaper to do yeah. than syndicated programming where you don't get to insert enough commercials. You can put all the commercials you want to in a three-hour news block. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the bottom line, and I get it, everybody's got a bottom line. Everybody's got to get their funding from somewhere. Uh, but I do think that uh, the constriction of available uh, hiring and, and paying good people has chased a lot of really good people out of the business. You brought up TV. I've had a lot of applications from TV reporters that think maybe we're the outlet that they can now come to and do journalism. Uh, a lot of them, quite frankly, I just know don't do journalism the way I want it. TV is a different medium than what newspapers were. Um, but I get it. A lot of frustrated uh, and ex-journalists out there that just got dissatisfied with that everything had to be done quickly and without a lot of research and felt like they just couldn't tell the story to the depth and the level they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, how many reporters have I seen show up? They're carrying their own camera. They don't have a a, a videographer anymore. They're doing the editing. They're doing the stand-up live, which you can do from anywhere now. Uh, Here's an out-of-left-field question, but it's timely. As we're recording this, the big news in journalism is Jeff Zucker, the fellow who ran CNN, has been fired. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rightly or wrongly, we don't know, but he's no longer there. And he's the fellow who pretty much took CNN to an opinion-based network long before anybody else was doing that sort of thing. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, uh, never met Jeff Zucker, but certainly knew it. Like 28 years old, he was the executive producer for the Today Show. He was the wonder kid of of TV. Uh, uh, And clearly clearly what he's done uh, is remarkable. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it all. Uh, but as the boss at CNN, and then toward the end, as often happens, um, when the personalities become more important than your integrity, uh, it used to be a saying, you know, there are people who spend so much time polishing their reputation that their character gets flawed. 
Um, and I think that happens a lot. I think sometimes when you're a personality-driven medium as CNN, even Fox or MSNBC, a lot of outlets, um, then you're invested more in who that person is than the work they're doing. We saw that with uh, Chris Cuomo, uh, his defense of his brother Andrew. Uh, Andrew's uh, um, situation with women, I don't know exactly what to call it, that cost him his job. And now Jeff Zucker, apparently having a had a long-time uh, relationship with a subordinate that he was the head of CNN. The rules were you can't do this, and yet he was doing it, as we've seen so many politicians around the country that say you can't wear a mask or you have to wear a mask. Oh, except I don't have to when I'm at a Rams game. You know, that's okay. Um so it's, it's interesting to see the stuff does come full circle. You've got to be careful what you put in place because you've got to be responsible and answer for that too. In the last couple of days, I've actually seen, I've read a couple of uh, opinion pieces that maybe CNN would move back to being a news organization. Well, you know, what Fox has done, like them or not, uh, they are just killing the other two major news networks in the ratings and doing it consistently. Uh, CNN, of course, did great but when they're, you know, never Trump for those four years that, that uh, Trump was the president. Uh, but now that he's out, it's kind of settled back, and suddenly they realize we don't have that bogeyman anymore. Uh, they should. And some people are saying that's why suddenly this problem with uh, a girlfriend who yeah. is a subordinate is important because CNN's ratings are in the tank. Yeah, and I think if they recovered or, or reported on President Biden with the same intensity that they did President Trump, um, they would probably still be in good shape. But they've taken ideology and made that more important than journalistic integrity. And uh, that allows for some other stuff to happen, and you get caught up in it. Well, it's the old issue that goes back to the beginning of print journalism is you, you got to sell newspapers. you got to have yep. subscribers. Television has to have ratings. Radio really needs ratings, even though they've pretty much given up on the journalistic side on radio, other than opinion radio. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting, at least if you're a conservative, uh, talk radio, uh, Rush Limbaugh gave him a lot of credit, really turned that medium into the place that, that Republicans or conservatives went to for their information. Uh, that was a great, uh, he had a great vision for that. Uh, a lot of people, of course, followed along on that. Uh, you're uh, close to my age. I can remember when Rush Limbaugh first came out, and well, he was radical, hard right. You know, he was extreme. Toward the end, he was almost a centrist because he had spawned a lot of imitators. But to get that kind of attention, they had to move even further right, just as uh, MSNBC is because just being left of center wasn't enough. You had to go further left to attract that audience. Uh, so it was kind of funny to watch the Rush Limbaugh move from the extreme to the mainstream. A lot of people give him uh, credit for saving AM radio. Yeah. And really creating entertaining talk radio, yeah. re regardless of what your opinions are. A lot are. of coaches, it was funny, one in particular uh, that I would go into their offices at lunchtime between practice to talk to them would turn down Rush Limbaugh. They would have him on the radio, and they all had to listen. Just fun to listen to, yeah. even if you disagreed yeah. with him. He was very entertaining, a brilliant man, entertaining, never took himself too seriously, uh, it rubbed, you know, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but yet he, there was just a, a likability about him because, as I said, he, he would poke fun of himself, and people don't realize that he, he kind of had that you, nature. Why do you think there's never been a successful progressive talk show host or a talk radio network? They've tried a couple of times. Yeah, I, I, I think because they tend to be angry, and I don't think Rush Limbaugh was angry all the time. I think a lot of his was just sort of good-natured humor. Uh, there were certainly issues he talked about, 
but I, I, I think the, the progressive side feels like they've got to be angry about things. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people on the conservative side feel like they've got to be angry about everything. I, I think anger is only gets you so far down the road until people go, I'm just tired of being angry. That's why I hate those questions. Are you a liberal or conservative? Yeah. Well, on some issues, I'm probably almost radically one direction or another. On other issues, I'm very conservative. And You know, labels are hard, and I think that's one thing that we've yeah. come to. Um, the ideology in this country, if we want to get political, I mean, let's be honest, to, to beat a Gary Palmer in Alabama's 6th District, you've almost got to run to the right of Gary Palmer. Or redistrict to, the, yeah, the district. Or Terry Sewell, uh, the Democrat in the 7th District, to beat her, you're going to have to run to the left of her, or let's create a fair district. And we really, we need people that can appeal to the most people to be more centrist, I think. But we've created an environment where you know, you're either all with us or you're all against us. And most of us don't live our lives that way. We're, we're with you sometimes. We're against you sometimes. And that's it, just humanity. It's hard for me to figure, though, why, for example, gubernatorial candidates are in Alabama are running against Joe Biden. Yeah. Not for Alabama. I'd, yeah. I'd like to hear what they're going to do for the state. And that's one of the things, you know, the, the Virginia governor election with Glenn Youngkin. I, Trump endorsed him, and he said, that's great. I like it. But that's not relevant to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think we need to hear is, uh, okay, fine. You love Trump. We get that. But now tell us what you're going to do about the issues we're facing. Because, quite frankly, even Joe Biden or Trump or Nancy Pelosi, for that matter, is not really what affects my day-to-day life as much as what the next governor, the next uh, representative from my state district is going to do. Now tell me, is that kind of what 1819 News is going to try to do? Well, and we are. We're focused on the state. It's interesting in our conversations as staff, national stories will pop up. And sometimes I have to go, guys, that's outside our bandwidth. We want to let people know what's going on in Montgomery. We want to let them know what's going on in their communities that affects them statewide. But we want to stay focused on Alabama. I've had a number of people submit columns, uh, and I'll tell them, hey, it's a great column. But it's just not what we're about. We're really about Alabama. Yeah, I'm worried about Ukraine and what's going to happen. But that pothole on 280 that I hit on the way in a few <laughs> minutes ago, that's yeah. a little more close uh, to home. You know, we're, we can all rant about vaccines, and, and, and vaccines do affect us here. And we've had our share of stories about that. But uh, uh, our school, our education system, the fact that we have fallen to 52nd in some rankings, we're ahead of only Puerto Rico. Those are things that really affect us all if you have kids or if you want the future of the state to go there. So, um, yeah, the squad, as much as they may make you angry, let's really focus on maybe there's some people in Montgomery that ought to be making you just as angry that you could actually do something about. That's what we want to present to people and get them aware of. Ray, my iced tea has run out. I <laughs> don't have any more left. Uh, and yet we still got a lot of questions that I would like to ask. Yeah, it's a great conversation. It's fun to talk. Like I said, you're exactly right. It's fun just to sit here like old, a couple of old guys in the business and just talk. It's exactly. Fun. I hope somebody else thinks that too. Yeah. <laughs> and I do appreciate you all listening. Ray, thanks so much for taking time Absolutely to, to be with us today. This Alabama Life is a podcast about people who are associated with the state of Alabama and Typically, they are positive stories. We want to leave you with a very positive feeling. Uh, We also appreciate it if you will uh, give us a rating, uh, five stars, if you feel like that's uh, justified for wherever you uh, get your podcasts. And we are available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, uh, YouTube. The, The videos are available in several of those locations. Or you can always go to the 1819 News website, 1819news.com, and get a link to all of the podcasts that uh, are being put together here. 
We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you'll join us next time for this Alabama Life.